You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Magdal, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at both Locked On WBB and, of course, our 24-7 coverage of the game at Summit Hoops, two T's in honor of Pat. And somebody who does more than anyone, really, to bring this game to light and to give people a better sense of it, uh, someone who I was just saying off air, I could talk to for hours, and I'm just privileged to get a chance to it all, is Debbie Antonelli, who's with us and uh, is going to be calling the game tomorrow night between Howard, UConn thank you. and Oklahoma. Um, Debbie, I love thank you so coming much on your show, us. so thank you for inviting me. Oh, please. My pleasure. So let's talk about this young up-and-coming coach named Gina Oriema, uh, who I think people are starting to get to hear about a little bit. When when you see a number like like a thousand, a thousand wins, I mean, what does that even mean to you when you, when you sort think of think it about means it and try and put it in what context? I call passionate work ethic. You have to absolutely love what you do. You have to work hard. You have to work smart. And you've got to have a lot of people along your path that have helped you um, accomplish such a milestone. And I think uh, reflection and humility are two words that I think we'll be talking a lot uh, about a lot with uh, Gino. When, I mean, he's the first to talk about that, to try to deflect it and talk about the players that come along. But I guess I wonder whether, because when you think about sort of the narrative arc of the game. You think about a lot of things that Pat Summit built. And then it seems like in a lot of ways, Gino sort of took it to another level. Do you, do you see it that way? Or do you think there are things that Gino did well, that no one Let me take it back a second and, and say this. Um, you know, from my perspective, Howard, I've had a chance to be on the call for many milestone games across of our game uh, right now. I'm very fortunate to be in the position where I can say to you, I called Pat's number 1,000 and 900. I called Jody Conrad's number 900. I did Sylvia's 800. I did Kay Yao's mm-hmm. 700. I did Muffet's 700. I'm sure there's some others in there that I've had the, the privilege of, of being on the call for. And um, there was a consistent theme uh, across all of those people that I mentioned, you start talking about some of the greats, and Tara, I didn't get to call any of her milestones, but she would certainly be, be in, in the mix on this. They um, they are all um, great teachers, so they have that in common. They all have an incredible passion about what they do, uh, and they've done it in different ways. So I don't know if you can, you know, cast some giant net over um you know, one person doing it a different way than another. But, you know, the percentages of wins versus top 25 opponents, you know, Pat, 40% of the games that she won were against top 25. Gino's number is going to be 26%. Okay, so when you look at that, you can use that as a, as, as a measuring stick. I, I, I don't even like to go into comparing too deeply uh, because they're so great in their own respect respective ways so it's hard to really to make a declaration about one being better than the other i mean obviously you can measure it in a lot of different ways and i've heard heard gino joke about numbers you know the only numbers he cares about really are um you know uh if somebody goes 0 for 8 from the floor and if he gets a 
you know, if he gets a, a bogey on a golf hole, that'd be plus one, hmm. you know. So, I mean, he, he, he keeps it in perspective, um, and he's had a lot of great people that have helped him, and that's not to diminish anything that he has done. He is incredibly gifted and talented and an incredible leader and ambassador for our game and a great teacher. And, you know, what's interesting to me when you think about the legacy, and, and all that, those points are really well taken, uh, but, you know, there were people who thought, especially when he went four and four, that he was going to retire, to go out on top, and, you know, in the way John Wooden did on the men's side, you know. And to him, it was every year was a new opportunity to build something new. And I still remember how excited he was uh, at, at the post game, you know, after after Stewie's last game as uh, a collegiate player, just starting to talk about, think about next year. And so it yeah. seems like there's always sort of that new challenge that comes in. And yeah. so, so, I mean, is that ultimately what, in your mind, bonds these great coaches together, Pat and Muffet and Gino and, and Tara, uh, that there's always a new person to learn from I think rather there's two than parts to it. there's I a certain amount of victories Because they've to been win. in the game so long, they remember when they had nothing. No resources, no interest, didn't make any money. You know, hmm. why would you walk away from $3 million when you've got your health and you're happy <laughs> and you're successful? That's hmm. one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is he really loves his players. And he says this all the time. We could win another championship. I'm going to have a thousand wins or whatever. It's not going to change my life. I'm not going to change where I live. I'm not going to change, you know, the way I go to work every day. But for the people in the program that have not experienced winning a championship or accomplishing some sort of milestone, he said, it's going to change their lives. And that's what he enjoys the most. And you can look at that when he was, you know, maybe on the climb. And you could say, you know, that maybe there was somebody would read that the wrong way you know but now when you look and you reflect at where he is what he's done mm-hmm. and when he says I could win another championship it's not going to change my life it really isn't going to change his life but the people that win that championship it could change theirs and, and you hope it changes it for the better and makes makes things better and and then to and then you, to play you would for think, him, absolutely. Which is I mean, I think well, uh, I know what kind of impact and relationship I have with my coach. I know how it impacted my life. I think uh, that that's true for every kid that plays anywhere. And then you get to experience the things that you get to experience with UConn, with the resources, and you know, with the opportunity that comes from having played for Gino. It, it it really is singular and and consistent the stories through the years you know whether you're talking about uh, you know people from Rebecca Lobo's era on right up through the present but you know the the experience is something that people do take with them forever and I am struck though as we talk about the team that he has now in trying to figure out just how good this Connecticut team is so I I guess really the place that I would start with trying to evaluate it is there was that period of time, you know, the, those those Mariah Jefferson, Brianna Stewart teams, Morgan Tuck teams, let's not 
uh, failed to give her her due as well, uh, where it simply was a question of if they played their A game, it didn't matter who was on the court with them. And that really wasn't the case last year. Uh, as great as that team was, and that, that team deserved uh, of, of the accolades that it received, you know, right, right up and in, into the Final Four. I'm wondering whether you think this team is closer to a team competing for oh, a national no, championship or a, a team apart. There's no question to me. Uh, we've never had a team have six players on the Naismith Trophy watch list. That's six players. That's five and a, star, and a person off the bench. They've got six players in double figures. They have incredible balance. They have incredible discipline. They have great execution. This is a team that is going to be really hard to beat. Um, every year, I feel like, Howard, I, I put up the, the same graphic on how do you beat UConn? You know, what are the tools that you have to have in your toolbox? What are some of the things that attributes you gotta, you got to be able to, to have to play them? And it feels like it's the same conversation for me. You have to score from five spots. You know, you got to be able to uh, defend one-on-one because you can't help. If you help too much, they're, they're going to make the right read. You got to have a playmaker when the shot play breaks down. You get inside 10 on the shot clock. Can you have somebody who can make a play off the bounce, can take care of a broken play and score? Uh, and you got to be able to create space. Can you, you know, can you make a play in space? Can you create space? Can you score on a closeout? Because they're going to defend you and defend you hard, and you're going to have a hard time stopping all that they're scoring. You know, it's just, it's hard to match them. Uh, I've come up with a new thing that I'm going to break on the air tomorrow. I'm calling it the Connecticut Coaches Conundrum. Every coach, when you play Connecticut, you have to make certain decisions about how you're going to play. Number one, what kind of tempo do you want to play, Howard? Do you want to play a tempo that that slows it down, shortens the possessions, gives them less opportunity to score with less possessions, or do you play your own tempo? You know, do you send two or three to the glass or do you get back in transition? You know, do you help on D or do you play straight up one-on-one? you give up twos or do you give up threes? I mean, you know, like you have to make up your mind how you want to play against them and how you're going to get your team better because you're going to be better for the experience. You might not win the game, but you will have regardless of the score. You will have good film and good teaching moments that you've gone against the very best. And I, and I say this on a lot of broadcasts when I see – um, I see, you know, Connecticut, when you watch them, it's the things that don't show up in the stat sheet that are impressive. They cut hard all the time. They sprint the screen. They sprint the floor. They have great spacing. That doesn't just happen just because you hope it happens. They work on it every single day. And then you watch other teams that they don't sprint the screen. They don't sprint hard. They don't run the floor every time. They don't box out every single possession. Sure, the Connecticut kids are going to make a mistake here or there, but they're not going to make two in a row, and that's the big difference to me. Their habits are better than everybody else's habits. And that's the big difference to me. Their habits are better than everybody else's habits. And I think to an extent, I mean, there's no question. It's something you have to see. But it does show up, I feel like, in the stat sheet in some significant ways, and and by which I mean you look at the growth of, like, a crystal danger field year over year. And and she's shooting, she sort of boggles the mind, 53.5% from three. And you just wonder, 
if she's at any other program in America, and she's also tasked with doing a lot of the heavy lifting uh, in terms of running the offense, uh, whether she would be able to develop her shot to the extent that she has been able to already. And the same thing with Tia Nurse. Tia Nurse, who feels to me almost like she was like a forgotten star. I mean, people forget that she was the conference preseason player of the year last year, and then injuries slowed her down early on, and she didn't really have the year that I think a lot of people expected. Uh, But she is not only the lockdown defender she's always been, she's shooting 55% from three. I mean, these are just these video game numbers that they're putting up, and I think it's a direct consequence of the fact that every piece, like you said, is operating at peak efficiency because he doesn't get every All-American that comes out of high school. When you come out of high school as a high school All-American, you come out of high school as an offensive player. Mm-hmm. That's why you're an All-American. It's not because you can play defense. Okay, so you, you get that honor because you know how to score. And then you look at where those players go, and then why do Connecticut's players seem to develop better than, than others? Why There's a lot of players that improve, but they improve inside the team concept as well because it's that big hmm cliche called culture you know and and it must be really difficult to attain because you know everybody claims they have an identity and everybody claims they have a culture but i think it's become cliche in our game i really do i i feel like there are places where there are really talented teams and they just don't perform consistently at the same level where he demands certain things and he gets it and if he doesn't get it then he's moving past you on to the next person and if the next person comes on court and they play, you may not get your, your, your minutes back, you know, because it's another All-American. And the, the work ethic that comes with it is, yeah. is, I think everybody works hard. I'm not sure everybody works smart, but I, I do think, Howard, that there is um, um, a, a level of expectation that you come in, that when you come to Connecticut, very much so like my experiences with, For example, if you um, committed to go play football at Ohio State when I worked at Ohio State, you knew as a football player coming into that program there were a certain measure of expectations, there was a certain uh, measure of exposure that you were going to get. It was going to be at the highest level. That's a huge brand in college sports, Ohio State football. When I was at Kentucky, Kentucky men's basketball, a huge brand, a high level of expectation, a high level of exposure. And they, those kids don't just meet it, they exceed it. And he doesn't, you know, he selectively picks who he wants to fit inside what he wants to do and how he wants to play. And they understand when they decide to go to UConn that these are the things that you're going to have to do. Not everybody is like that. They have different ways of going about it, but his way is certainly working. It certainly is. It would be hard to hard to argue that uh, to be sure. I, I, I am curious because certainly let's let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, Sherry Cole's team uh, in Oklahoma certainly had plenty of success. Uh, you know, in her tenure, what exactly? I mean, I'll throw out that triple C idea that you had. What exactly does Oklahoma need to do uh, to shock the world? The, uh, and the deny triple Gino C, that the Connecticut coaches conundrum. Yes, we're going to coin it right here, and you'll hear it on the air uh, as well. Um, yes. No, not yet, but I Have think you every coach has it. I don't want you know, to step on your toes. What do you do? How do you do it? What, what decisions do you make? And maybe it's easy yes. for some to just say, we're going to play the way we play, you know, and We'll try to take a few things away from them if we can. 
but um, that's that's the beauty of what Connecticut does is there's so many ways that they can hurt you. Um, I do say I, I will say this: if you think about the teams that have bothered Connecticut, I didn't say beat them; I said sort of bother them. Okay, the teams that bother them are teams that have great guard play and can shoot it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Notre Dame has great guard play; they can shoot it. They can space it out. They can spread you out. They can score in transition. Okay, they they are a very good three point shooting team. Um, think back when Dayton, a couple of years back when in the Elite Eight, Dayton had uh, played with them for a while, a team that could space it, shoot it, score it from five positions. Okay, really um, bothers that style. And then Mississippi State, they had enough scores on the outside. But they were very physical and long. They were a, a, an athletic, long, defensive minded physical team that bothered Connecticut's rhythm. You know, I think they are. I think one thing that you have to try to do is make them put it on the floor and not let them play off the pass. They are such an excellent passing team. They put it in the shooting pocket uh, and do a very nice job of moving the ball. You know, so they give it to the shooter where the shooter wants to catch it. You don't have to reach too high. You don't have to drop your hands. A shooter does not want to drop their hands below their waist. You won't see a Connecticut kid make a bad pass on the perimeter. I think you have to make them play mm-hmm. off the bounce. Um, I'm not really – I mean, Gabby Ortiz is a senior and, and embodies great toughness uh, and is a terrific shooter and has had uh, the best back-to-back three-point shooting games in Oklahoma history because she has a combined 15 threes coming in in the last two games. Um, she's, she's got great toughness. It, it's it's a challenge to pick and choose what you want to do. I mean, I would not send anybody to the offensive glass. I would get back in transition. I wouldn't press them because uh, I don't want to open up the court for their backside scoring. So I've got to put a lot of pressure on my offense. I've got to make sure I reverse the ball at least two times, maybe three, try to get them in rotation, see if I can get some open shots. And then i got to hope I'm hot, and i got to hope that they're not. That's the way uh, in Oklahoma. I wonder if they'll. And, and I wonder if you if you can play through a Viennese Pierre Lewis. I mean, I, obviously, you know, Gino's going to make a point of figuring out how to stop the ball going in and through her. But when you look at somebody who manages out of the post to lead all starters in assist percentage and be able to score the way she has and grab rebounds the way she has as well, uh, with the rebound percentage north of 14 as well. It's. It seems like she's going to have to have the game of her life in order for this one uh, to be. Howard, to be you're right. She's going to have to have a monster uh, game, like a Courtney Paris-like number forty, because Connecticut's going to play her straight up. They're not going to double, mm-hmm. which is going to take away exactly. her ability to pass. So they're going to just play her one on one, and um, you know she's going to have to work really hard to get deep position in the paint so that she can back the front line of Connecticut, whoever guards her. I'm sure there will be a combination of Collier, Williams, and Stevens uh, defending her. But I see them playing her straight up um, and not bringing a double, and she's going to have to be able to to score off of that. And hopefully, you know, for Oklahoma's sake, they probably will hope that maybe uh, Connecticut can get in a little bit of foul trouble on the front line. But the pace is going to have to be where Vivi can be a factor. So that's that's why Oklahoma is going to have to make sure they don't turn the ball over, they don't make back-to-back mistakes, you don't let a, a bad shot lead to Connecticut's transition on a long three. 
uh, uh, you can't press them because it opens up the floor. So there's a lot of things that I think you have to take a really hard look at, thinking about your own personnel and, and what you're trying to do. And, uh, you know, try to, the other side of it too is just to just enjoy the moment. It's going to be an incredible environment, you know, going for a thousand. Uh, and just play every possession and try not to look at the scoreboard. That's what I would say. <laughs> that might be my halftime speech, though. <laughs> it's true. Right, right, right. And 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 worst comes to worst, there's a Bobby's Burger Palace in Mohegan Sun. So you know you can always drown your sorrows in one of those. Well, so let let's jump if we can from uh, that game tomorrow night, which I know everyone's going to have their eyes on. Uh, and I'm curious about a pair of teams that you you saw up close uh, do battle in one of what I think was one of the defining games of the early season, and that's Tennessee against Texas. And so I want to start with the Lady Vols and just ask simple question to you. I think that's a, a, a really good team for Hollywood. Like, I think the young players are uh, hard workers. I think they have great chemistry. Um, they're they're sharing the basketball. They're throwing it inside to Mercedes, and she's been effective. Um, Jamie Nard is playing like uh, her draft stock is moving up. I think she's got great versatility. I really like her game. Um and I think uh, mm-hmm. Holly has managed the tempo, you know, between man-to-man and, and zone. Um, but I, I think Tennessee is in the conversation. They were on the periphery for years, even though Holly went to three Elite Eights. But now I think this is a team that um, will have a chance to advance, maybe be a Final Four team. I think they're in the conversation. And um, I'm wondering when the NCAA tournament is actually going to put Tennessee and UConn together. We haven't had that game in a while. It's overdue, and, and and it's interesting because you're right. They're they made the elite eights, but when they were making these elite eights, a lot of times it was with double digit losses. It was you know a conversation where a lot of the year it was what's wrong with Tennessee, and really there's nothing wrong with Tennessee for a team that consistently is making the tournament and reaching the elite eight uh, more often than not, but. It wasn't well, I, at the I level think, of what Tennessee had come to expect. No, I was just going to say, and, to your point, Howard, well, sorry to interrupt you, but it, last year they lost, yeah, I think, six games that were to teams that did not go to the NCAA no, tournament, yet they beat, you know, they were 5-2 and two against the top 10 or something like that. It was mm-hmm. an, I, I don't have the number in front of me, but they had some significant wins, and then they had some really bad losses. So the inconsistency of it, I think, is what makes people, you know, question, you know, where is Tennessee? But having watched um, Holly in practice with her players, watching how good their chemistry is, uh, how bad Jamie Nard and Mercedes want to win, um, I think the leadership is good, and uh, I think the young freshmen are, are going to get better. So the you know you get seasoned pretty quickly in the SEC because of the physical nature and athleticism of the league. No question about it. And so, you know, Tennessee has won with freshmen before, so it's not not as if that is an impossible task for them either. But I guess what I wonder is what you think has to develop among that group between Well, I think two things coming off of an early game, so we're still in December. I would say shot selection and taking care of the basketball are going to be two things that they're going to have to absolutely um, be better at executing. Um, because they're going to have to move the ball a little bit more, and they can't turn it over. And uh, 
if they can sharpen up on those two things, their defense is already there. They've got rim protection. They run the floor hard. They've got great effort. They've got good depth. Um, the freshman class is really impressive, and, uh, and and it's exciting to watch them play it because they you can see how much they love playing. It, it, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And to be frank, I, I I think the game is better when Tennessee is in the national conversation in that way. So I, I, I think Holly has gotten uh, a, a bit of a raw deal from uh, critics over the last few years. And so this may be the year she gets to, uh, to put that right. It would be interesting to see. But the other side of it, uh, which is uh, Texas. And, you know, look, it's hard to talk about a team needing to get better and it comes off and uh, just beat that Florida State team that hadn't lost. Uh, you know, Brooke McCarty had another exemplary effort, uh, reigning conference player of the week as well. But every time I've been watching them early on, all I'm thinking about is the impact of Joyner Holmes as well uh, and thinking, oh, what is this team going to be when Joyner Holmes gets back? And and so I guess my two-part question to you is, how much did they need yes Joyner and Holmes, yes. and how much better do you think they did? I mean, I, if I'm I, there's parts of um, that Tennessee-Texas game that uh, if I'm Texas, I just throw it in the trash. That is not who we are. We did not play well. Uh, we didn't do anything right. And part of that is Tennessee's credit, and I'm not disrespecting Tennessee by saying that. I've never seen Brooke McCarty play so poorly or shoot the ball that badly. Um, and so you move move away from that and you kind of go, okay, well now who is Texas and, and who are they going to be? Joyner Holmes is fantastic. She is athletic, long, she's runs, she's jumps, she's exciting to watch. She is a big piece for Texas. And when she comes back, it's going to change a few people's roles probably everybody's role because of the way they all play through her and to her um, but it's going to be exciting for Texas because their guard play is is good um, I say that coming off of having seen them in the Tennessee game I know their guard play is much better than what they showed in that game and I know they'll fix uh, some of the problems that they had there and they've already fixed them I mean that was a Florida State win where Brooke McCarty played well and Ariel Atkins shot the ball well. Uh, and when they get Joyner Holmes back, that's another piece that's going to make, make them really dangerous. And the physicality of Joyner Holmes, to me, that, that was, it's almost like that's the missing piece when you look at what Texas is and can be. You just watched her down the stretch last year, and she was bullying people. She was just going through the lane at will. And that, to me, you know, like, like you talked about, Atkins shoots the ball extremely well. I think she's, she's I don't have it in front of me, but I think like 50% from three. And obviously, Brooke McCarty does so many things and can get her shot basically whenever she wants it as well, which is remarkable for her size. But Joyner Holmes creates essentially, a, you know, at, at the risk of uh, a takeoff of the Triple C, you know, a conundrum because it's a problem that most teams don't have You know in the NBA when LeBron catches the ball at the top of the key of and he's got a full head of steam and he's heading to the rim, people just get out of the way? You know, that's the kind of physical presence that, that I think, mm. you know, you and I are both talking yes. about because, you know, physically you can't beat up anybody anymore based on the way the rules are. But what she does that gives them a physical presence is – she is a shot blocker and alterer at the rim, which makes you have to pull up so you're concerned about the physicalness around the rim. And then the way she posts up. 
And then when she catches it in the high post and she gets got, she's got the one dribble move from up there, that's hard to defend. You know, I was just talking about Asia Wilson in the same, the same way. You, you know, when she catches the ball and she's going to the basket at 6'5 with her frame, mm-hmm. you really don't want to take that charge. So it's, it's really, that's the physicalness that they bring because it's intimidating with their size and their raw power and their ability with their skill set to score from the high post in the shoot towards the rim. And and it's d- different players, but I mean, to me, Joyner's face-up game is ahead of where Asia's was freshman year, uh, which which is no knock on what Asia Wilson was or has become, quite frankly. But it's interesting to me. It it feels like Joyner is uh, almost more comfortable. I'm curious to ask you more comfortable. Well, I think everyone because of the way the game uh, is played. You know, uh, I mean, there's not a lot of throw your five player on the block and let him sit there and just post up. There's a lot of movement and taking the, the space and changing the space, changing the angles to the rim by where your post play uh, resides, using the short corner more. They're all capable of moving around, and that's that's what um, Asia Wilson does really well, and Dawn Staley's done a terrific job of moving her away from the basket into the short corner, in the shoot, uh, even hit a three yesterday in, in the game um, mm-hmm. that they played against Savannah State. Jordan Holmes is very similar. You know, move her around, take her away from the block, create some driving lanes, still keep your perimeter game and move the ball and, and look to rotate and, and ball reversal, but also to, to move that post player off the block so that you've got some lanes to the rim. Oh, yeah. yeah Dawn's Maybe. another young up-and-comer uh, who's starting to get some attention, but she threw <laughs> just a little. She, but she threw a Candace Parker comp on Asia Wilson to me uh, at Media Day this year, and that caught my attention. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what is she about to do? What's that next level that she's reached? And uh, my goodness, is it wonderful to watch. And so let's talk about Asia Wilson's <laughs> potential future employer uh, for a minute before I let you go. And that would be uh, the Las Vegas franchise in the WNBA. Now, Look, I, I know Vegas is a spot close to your heart. I know you've talked for a long time about Vegas being a terrific place for uh, a Sweet 16 tournament and simply to have it in a single destination. Uh, so you were the first person I thought of when I heard about this news. And I'm curious, what were the first things uh, that so occurred to you when you heard about the game. WNBA you know, moving to Vegas? I think even on, on your show one time, I said if I was president of the WNBA, I would put a franchise in Vegas and I would give the players equity, equity in the league. And um, that's the second part of it. There's, there's got to be more mathematical and economical people that can figure that out with free agency and, uh, um, you know, with, with all the things and all the rules and all the, the stuff that goes with the, the WNBA in terms of player movement and all that. But I'm serious. I mean, I've always felt like uh, for seven years I've been talking about the Sweet 16 to Vegas. And uh, if, if you want me to launch into why, I will. But I can tell you this, Howard. Uh, it is going to be a great move for the women's game. Um, Clark County is the fifth largest school district in the country, is, which is the county that Las Vegas resides in. Uh, I think the, because I know the management team at, at MGM, and I know how excited those people are to bring a franchise there because they want to win. And Vegas does everything big. And Asia Wilson, as the number one pick in the draft, is going to be fantastic playing with 
uh, Mariah Jefferson, Kayla McBride, and Kelsey Plum on the perimeter. I can just see how much fun Bill Lambeer is going to have putting that offensive system together. I don't think he ever stopped smiling during the introductory press conference. I wouldn't, <laughs> no. I wouldn't call him a chronic smiler in New York. And so you can imagine having uh, that group together uh, must play a big part in it. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I think it would be a huge success. And, and I guess I wonder, do you think this can be a precursor uh, to the Sweet 16 in Vegas as well? That this is something, I, I mean, you know, not only that type of tournament, but you know, I, I talk to WNBA coaches all the time about this, that, you know, the, that there isn't a combine is uh, a huge negative, a huge uh, drawback to being able to evaluate players. And, you know, sure, you know, you can you can go out to these different games, but getting everyone in a combine and being able to see them in real yeah. time, uh, it seems like what, what a natural opportunity that is to uh, have you know to have the tournament, the draft, a now, combine. Now, Howard, you're going to make you know, me have to tell right you this one little story. In Las Vegas. When before the WNBA, when the ABL was in existence, Please. Brian Agler won two championships with the Columbus Quest. The first year that the ABL was in existence, I was doing the national package on Fox as the analyst. We had a game of the week every Sunday, but I also because I lived in Dayton was doing the Columbus Quest local package on the local cable company. And so Brian and I had known Brian for years. We did an ABL combine. We did it in Kansas City. And we this was before the league really launched, before the ABL. So we had, I, I want to say, you'd have to ask Brian, but it was like 250 women that came to try out, and we had... I, we didn't have every ABL head coach there, but we had more than 50% of them. I want to say we had like seven or eight. And they sat at the combine, and it was a true combine where they evaluated one player out of the 200 or so actually got a contract. But what it did was it provided these women that had played, played overseas, that wanted to play professionally in our country, that never had a chance, an opportunity to try out and compete. And it was a three-day combine. I believe we did three days. Anyway, it was a really fun proposition uh, that Brian and Agler, Brian Agler and I put together. And it was a, called the ABL Combine. I still have a pair of shorts that say ABL Combine on it. And this year, when we go to the Final Four in Columbus, the Columbus Quest will be celebrating um, 25 years, or no, 20 years of winning their first I'm not sure if it's reverse or second now. I can't remember the years, but there's going to be a, a Brian Agler and and the Columbus Quest are re, reuniting to have uh, some sort of celebration and reunion. I can't wait. It'll be really fun. You can go as my guest. Oh, how Howard. You can go as my guest. Oh, that sounds amazing. That's be fun. Uh, Columbus is going to be. A, Oh man, I, I'm taking you up on that. That sounds like so much fun. I mean, a, anyone anyone who's not going to Columbus, by the way, is crazy to miss it out. It is. It's going to uh, be great. How, how great that's going to be uh, the Final Four this year. But I am looking forward to that. And 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 I'm I'm glad Brian Atkins. Well, he's he's got a final. He's got a Hall of Fame resume already. <laughs> One day he'll get a chance to get in. He sure does. He, it, it's it's ridiculous that he's not already in, but I, I, I'm sure I'm sure we don't disagree about that at all. Um, well, 
Debbie Antonelli, such a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, listen, I'm excited. We got a great conversation out of it. And uh, I've, I got a chance to uh, to go see an event in Columbus out of it as well. So this was this was a very productive podcast for me. And uh, obviously, make sure you you know you follow you on Twitter. What what else should people know? And and um, oh, you know, I, I want you well, to plug what else you're doing I, coming up. I just have two things I, that I I'm really trying to push right now. One, besides the Sweet 16 to Vegas, I'm always talking about that. And I will just say one quick Please. nugget about that. You know, the, the, the Sports um, Protection Act, which is being uh, litigated by the Supreme Court right now, is going to have a ruling. And when it does, it's going to be in favor of, of helping us get that bylaw from the NCAA changed. So let me just say that because there's a lot of stuff that's working that we have no control over. But once it does, and that sort of that mm-hmm. that cloud over that little bylaw disappears, we're in good shape in Vegas uh, because Vegas definitely wants us. But there's one thing on my on my Twitter. Um, I do. I'm working hard, and I mm-hmm. hope other people will join the focus. I, I call it hashtag ticket selling player. Who would you buy a ticket to see play? And that's basically what what we're doing, right? I mean, from a marketing and promotion standpoint, you know how much I care about offense. That's why people go to watch games. They don't go to watch somebody, you know, slug it out in the defensive effort. They're going for offense. So that's why I'm always encouraging coaches to make their players better. And I'm always encouraging players to become better shot makers. And the other thing is my uh, hashtag DNelly scouting report. And as I see teams on film and as I see teams, I'm giving uh, like three bullet points about why this team is fun to watch or why you ought to watch them or, or things that you ought to be looking for. So um, those are the two things that I'm promoting right now that I'm just doing that through my own Twitter account. Those are the two things that I'm promoting right now that I'm just doing that through my own Twitter account. It's, it's just huge. I can just tell you for me personally, you know, when you highlight a ticket selling player, if we don't have a plan to already write a story about her over at the summit, we make a plan. And that's what we did with Texas State uh, with Deer. And that's, uh, you, you know, now Tyler Stafe is someone who I've had my eye on for a while already. But again, it's, you know, letting people know this is something to pay attention to. And it's so important in the women's game where there isn't that infrastructure of people, you know, paying attention automatically because a player is excelling, because a player is doing something special. And so making sure that people are aware of that, both for teams to watch and players to watch, is so important. So I just think you're getting right at the heart of it. And, well, thank you, uh, Howard. I, I, I'm certainly grateful. I know lots of people Thank you. Well. It's fun, so, right? We got uh, Debbie, thank you for doing. everything it's a you do. It's a, we love it. <laughs> for sure for sure we we certainly do and to our listeners uh, a reminder to follow us uh follow certain follow debbie antonelli obviously on twitter as well uh and first and foremost and go ahead and follow summit hoops two t's uh in honor of pat uh for 24 7 coverage of the game i'm howard Meddal wishing you a wonderful night